There are two scripture readings this evening, the first taken from the Old Testament and the Psalm 110. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The law, the Psalms, the prophets, and the New Testament, all given by God's Holy Spirit. This is the word of Almighty God. David, by the Spirit, penning these words. Psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn, and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through the kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Amen. We turn now to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John and the chapter 18. The Gospel of John and the 18th chapter, reading from verses 1 through to the verse 12. Again, this is the Word of God. Let us hear together. God's holy word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered, and his disciples, and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Soon then, as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. The saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me. Shall I 
not drink it. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to bless the reading of his holy word. And all to the glory of his name and to the good of our needful and never dying souls here tonight. And all for his name's sake. Let us Well, dear congregation, I firstly would like to draw your attention to the reading, the first reading that I read to you in your hearing there in the Psalm 110, and particularly the first verse for a moment, and then we'll turn to the New Testament. Psalm 110, and the verse 1. These words, these words given to David by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Did you know, friends, and I I don't speak with any exaggeration tonight, that these words in the verse 1 are the most frequently cited words in the New Testament. These are the most frequently alluded to words in the New Testament. No other verse will you find in the New Testament is so alluded to than Psalm 110 and the verse 1. And that ought to get our attention immediately. It is a profound verse. There's so much in this verse. Now, It's not my intention, the Lord has not laid it upon my spirit to speak predominantly upon this verse, but I do want to look at the verses that we read in Matthew, there in chapter 18. But I do want to say a few things about this verse and about this psalm, and particularly about verse 7 of this psalm. Because verse 1 speaks of the very one in whom the New Testament is all about. It is all about God's dear Son, the second person of the Trinity. God is one, yet in three persons. God is of one essence, but He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it pleased God the Father that in the fullness of time He should send His Son into this sinful world to die for his people, and then to accomplish something that is, I suppose, humanly speaking, unimaginable. The great old age question, even Job asked it, is how can man be justified with God? How can man be right with God? Man in the Garden of Eden was separated from God. Adam, the day in which thou sinnest, thou shalt surely die. And this psalm here sets forth the work of the Lord Jesus. And this particular verse, verse 1, is so frequently cited, and I'm going to give you some references just in a moment, just to show you how and why, without equivocation, without any question at all, it is the most cited verse from the Old Testament in the New. And that bears great 
significance. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. This could not have been David. We know as David is referred to by Peter in Acts chapter 2. Peter says, how can David say, my Lord said unto my Lord, when David is not Lord himself. David was a sinner. But here the Lord Jesus, the Father speaking to the Lord Jesus said, sit thou at my right hand. That is, after he accomplished his work at Calvary, after he breathed his last, after he entered in through the veil, after he rose from the dead, and after 40 days ascended up into glory, the Father pronounced these words, said these words to the Son, Sit thou at my right hand. Now, I said it is the most frequently referred to verse from the Old Testament in the New. The allusions are very frequent and found so often there. Verse 13 of chapter 1 of Hebrews, we read, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So there's the first. Then Hebrews 8, verse 1 and 2. Now of the things Paul says, which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. There, the allusion to that Psalm 110, verse 1. Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And then in Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And we read, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Another allusion to it is 1 Peter 3.22, where Peter writes, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. And the Apostle Paul, in his epistle to the Ephesians, he writes in, Hebrew, in Ephesians 1.20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Romans 8, 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And then, as I mentioned earlier, as Peter preached on that great day of Pentecost and addressed the people, he said this in Acts 2.33, Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into heavens, the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. And then in the verse 24, referring to Christ again, whom God hath raised up, 
having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, that is the Christ, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, and he is on my right hand, that I should not be removed. And then, if we are in any denial of this, who this is, the very words of the Lord Jesus himself, in Matthew 22, And verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I Make thine enemies thy footstool. Well, we could go on. We could quote from Mark 12, verse 35. We could quote from Luke 22, 66, and so on. We should be in no doubt that this is, if you do a very careful study, the most frequently alluded to verse and quoted in all of the New Testament from the Old. Now, we come to this passage now as we turn, if you just notice in the verse 7, verse 7 is very poignant. And I believe that the Lord has laid upon my heart, my spirit this evening, a message tied in with what we considered this morning as we considered David crossing the brook Kidron. And what shall happen when the Savior himself, we thought this morning, did we not, of David crossing the book Kedron. But what will happen concerning the Lord Jesus if this psalm and this psalm does speak of Christ? And by the way, let me say the psalms are messianic. While they may speak of David's sufferings, they ultimately point us to Christ's sufferings. But they even greater, speak of the finished work of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people and the salvation that we must preach that is in his name, the forgiveness of sins that is in the name of God's dear and only begotten Son because David was a sinner. Could David ever make himself right with God? Could David ever do anything We have seen David in all of his sin in the last few chapters, haven't we, in 2 Samuel. David, a murderer. David, an adulterer. David, a failed father. But what was David's hope in? David's hope was in his Lord. And his Lord crossed the brook Kedron. And his Lord drank from the brook. But David did not drink from that brook. And so therefore we know that that Psalm 110 ultimately speaks of Christ. And you notice the words, verse 7, He, that is this Lord, who is now sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God the Father, has drunk from the brook. And we want to think about that as we preach the cross tonight. And as we preach Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. For his people, we want to declare what it means to drink from the brook in the way 
He shall drink, notice verse 7, of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. The lifting up of the head is imagery, it's symbolism of victory. And not looking down, not being bowed down, but lifting up the head. But he would have to drink from that brook in order that his head should be lifted up. In order that his people, too, their heads shall lift up. We are told in the Psalms, and you know the Psalms are wonderful to sing, aren't they? We learn so much from the Psalms. There is what we call anthropomorphic language in the Psalms, where we read, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and the King of glory shall enter in. The heart is pictured as a gate, and it is my prayer, it has been my prayer, that the Lord will open up hearts, that the King of glory may enter into those hearts, that heads may be lifted up, that our eyes may be fixed upon Christ, who endured such sufferings for his people to take them to glory. For without the suffering, my friends, without the suffering Savior, there is no heaven. God is a just God. And by virtue of his justice and holiness, he must punish sin. And we are reminded in Hebrews 9.24, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And my dear friends, the many will believe upon him. And they will repent of their sins. And they will believe the sweet gospel. And that's what we want to proclaim. Assurance of sins forgiven, my friends, is trust not only upon the finished work, of the Lord Jesus Christ, but upon the basis of a truly penitent heart. And I want us to examine tonight, do we have such a heart as we saw this morning David have in Second Samuel chapter 15? As David ascended the Mount Olivet, we read there how he went barefoot and how he wept and how we mourned. And those that were went with him wept and mourned. And let me say that's true of every one of God's people. And those that weep over their tears and trust in this Lord can have no doubt that this Lord bore their sins in his own body. Because only his people will look and live and trust in Jesus Christ. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and many thought it was a very foolish thing to look upon a brazen serpent. How many think it's foolish to look and live. To look to Christ and to live. But you see what God does by the hearing of his word and by the power of his spirit. He will call sinners to look and to live. We even read in the psalm, 
in the day of his power. What does he do? Psalm 110, verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. That is, God works in the ministry of his word, turning people's hearts and minds, showing them their sin and their unworthiness. And they look and they live and they're made willing to follow the Savior. Well, friends, without any further ado, let us turn now to that portion in uh, there in Matthew's Gospel and the chapter 18. And I want you to notice there, John 18, beg your pardon, John 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron. In the Old Testament, it's spelt Kedron, but it's the same river, where there was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. Now, I want to think on some of the parallels that we drew this morning and then make application in terms of the gospel. There's so many parables as we saw. We saw this man, Ahithophel. He pictures Judas, doesn't he? A very faithful companion of David. And now how Ahithophel, what did he do? He conspired with Absalom, the wicked son of David, who wanted to be king. Let me say, friends, Even before the world was created, there was a traitor. And his name is Satan, an angel of light, the most beautiful angel we are told, glorious. We are told in Isaiah, he says, and I shall be as God, I shall be as God. And yet he was cast out. He is styled also as Beelzebub, the destroyer. Diablos, Beelzebub, the deceiver, and Diablos, the destroyer. And he came to destroy. Man who is made in God's image. Not man made in God's image, did not God say in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, let us make man in our image. And Satan was already cast out at that point. And there he is, roaming, and he tempted our parents, planted thoughts in their minds, and they began to sinfully think wrong things against God, and to imagine that somehow God was withholding better from them. But God was surely always ever true to them, was he not? Never a lie from God. But right there in the garden... What did the Lord do? Well, we're told that he covered their nakedness, their shame. Animals were slain. Blood was even shed then so that there would be a covering. Certainly pointing us to the very fact that one would have to eventually come into this world and to cover for our sins. There would have to be death. Adam and Eve, they told their sons, Cain and Abel, how to worship God, for God had told them a sacrifice must be given. 
Eventually, we're told in Genesis 3.15, the Lord speaking to Satan, saying that he will put enmity between the seed of the woman and between him. And we know that eventually a Savior would come into the world, and he would have to be forsaken. He would have to be despised. He would, unwittingly though, the Satan didn't know it, he would lay down his life for his sheep. Now, friends, as we come to these passages this evening, particularly here, John 18, we see the sinless Savior, how he's lived in the world, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. What did he ever do wrong to Judas? But Judas, we are told, always had his hand in the money bag, didn't he? We're told that he was covetousness. He lived for this world. And my friends, Judas is no different. People to this world are no different to Judas. They live for this world. They can hear about the Savior. Maybe you've sat under my ministry for year after year. And you've been living for this world. And that's all you've been thinking about is this world. But friends, this world is going to come to an end. It has to come to an end. It's a wicked world. It's a sinful world. Man is born a sinner. Job said in Job 14.1, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. That's every one of us. You look at the days of your life and my life, there's trouble in our lives. Why? Because of sin. People lie, they're unkind, and they die. Why do you die? Because you're a sinner. Because there's trouble. You have a, a bad record and a bad heart. That's it. Now, what we see, remember what we thought this morning in Second Samuel 15. We thought there of the effects of sin. David, what was happening to him? David, he was in a sense suffering for his sin, wasn't he? The consequences of not dealing with an unruly son. And then we see his son. His son is hell-bent, as it were, on getting the throne. Absalom, he steals the hearts of the people. Why? Because he wants to steal the throne. Absalom, well, he blinded the minds of the people. In the case of Absalom, it was his desire to have his father's kingdom. He was a covetous man. He had good looks, charm, maybe even wit. He was a man of stealth, but that was never enough. And he wanted more. He wanted his father's kingdom. Now, Absalom lives out what so many, let me say, feel in their heart. You might just feel it in your heart. But the sin is there, isn't it? Covetousness. But also, as I said, we see in David, as a result of his adultery with Bathsheba and that treacherous murder of her husband Uriah, David is suffering at the hands of his son. Now, God had said, as a result of his murder to Uriah, that the sword would never depart from his house. And that is happening. And each time trouble comes to David's heart, his conscience would tell him that the Lord chastens his people. Now what is happening here? There in 
2 Samuel 15, the passing over the brook Kedron, let me say in the first place, meant deliverance to David. Now I know I spoke about this some years ago, but I want to revisit it with some fresh thoughts tonight. You think of this, David had to cross the brook Kedron, but as he passed the brook Kedron, let me say, it was a watershed moment. Things seemed to get better for him, but not for Christ. And there's the difference, friends, between Christ and us. The believer who, as it were, passes the Jordan of death now because Christ has died for the believer. He enters into eternal life and the bliss of heaven. The believer has eternal life now, but Christ had to pass through death and the death of deaths in order to take his people to give them eternal life. Now here tonight, as we think of David, as we thought this morning of David crossing the brook Kedron, not, I didn't say a lot about the brook Kedron, but there are many references in the Old Testament as to what the brook Kedron represented. We want to visit those here this evening. The first place, let me just show you there in 1 Kings 15. We read there, you may wish in your own time just to see how it was a place where many idols were cast. Many idols, including godly King Asa, he burnt the idol of his mother in the brook Kidron. Idolatry, of course, was a great sin in Israel. And of course, let me say, it is true. The scriptures say, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, we may not have picked up a stone and made an image of God. We may not have fashioned a piece of wood and made it a God. But have we not had idols in our lives? Are not things we have idolized? David idolized his son. He was the darling of his heart. And yes, we have idolized people and put them above God, haven't we? So there in First Kings fifteen thirteen, you can read for yourself how godly King Asa burnt the idol of his mother in the brook Kedron. He was a place of destruction of wicked things. And this brook Kedron, where the Lord Jesus Christ would have to pass through, was a horrific place. The second place I want to, you can look in your, for yourself in Second Chronicles 30 and the verse 14. It was a place where godly King Hezekiah cast all the altars that were in Jerusalem. And all the altars of incense there, they, they took away and cast them, we're told, into the brook Kidron. Verse 13, there of Second Chronicles 30. And there assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, a very great congregation. And they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem. And all the altars for incense took they away and cast them into the brook Kidron. 
It was a vile place. It was a place of banishment. Friends, we must say that we've had many bad altars in our lives, have we not? We're to lay everything on the altar for Christ because only God is worthy of our hearts. But we've thrown ourselves at many things in life, haven't we? Well, the Brook Kedron was a place where false altars were cast. And then thirdly, in Second Kings 23 and verse 12, it was that place where godly King Josiah did exactly the same. We read there in verse 12, And the altars that were on top of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, did the king beat down and break them down from thence and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And then in the fourth place, Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 40, we read there that it was the poorest of the poor that were buried in that vicinity. Why it was a ref- place of refuge, it stunk. You wouldn't go near it. You can see why David went there in a sense. It was not a place perhaps where the enemy might find him. And I want you to think for a moment, my friends, what is this world? It's not the world God made, not in the original sense. When you think of this world, look at it, it's a cesspool, is it not? I mean, just look at the cesspool of our own hearts. And the cesspool of our lives. Look at this world. Murder. Hatred. Vanity. Deceit. God is pure. Do we have a conception? Do we have an apprehension, my friends, of the holiness of God in our minds that he should come into such a cesspool of the world? And Kedron was a place, my friends, were those who could not afford anything lived. It was the place for the poorest of the poor because it was a dark, a harrowing place. It was a place full of mire and filth. It had its association with abomination. Not only were the idols cast there, but many terrible things took place there. It threw away all the refuge. And all the sewer systems flowed there. That part of Jerusalem outside. One 18th century preacher, Robert Hawker, described it as the black brook in which all the filth of the sacrifices was thrown. He says in the summer heat of the high heat, the stench was unbearable. We read there in Second Samuel, a passage we saw this morning. We have David crossing over with the company of all those, remember, that honored him. I mean, they must have had to have honored David to pass through such a vicinity. But they did, they stunk by him. We read there, and all the country wept with a loud voice. And all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kedron. And the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And we read how they wept. And how they lamented, no doubt, over David's sin and their own sin. 
and realizing that all of this trouble has come because of what sin? Not just Absalom's, but theirs. They should have stood by the king. There are things maybe they could have said and done, but they didn't do. They didn't stand up, did they, to this wicked man Absalom? And when Absalom steals, who? Ahithophel? Was he a good man? He was a crook. Ahithophel was Judas of the Old Testament. They could have stood up to them. And that's us, my friends, by nature, when we look at our own hearts. Have we not stood up? Have we failed to stand up for what is right in life? Can any of us say that we have done that? No, we can't say that. We weep over our sins and the sins of others. Yes, as Job said, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Not only trouble of his own heart, but the trouble of this world. Isn't it? You know, we're so weak to stand against our own sin and the sin of others. Well, they went to this place, and then David says, we must go back. But they had to pass over the brook Kedron, and when they did, things begot to get better, sweeter. You notice how David's popularity grew again after he crossed the brook Kedron. But my friends, not for the Lord Jesus. That night that he was betrayed, what happened? Judas went out into the thick of the night. Judas, who had seen him day after day, went and betrayed the Son of God. And did things get any better? Well, for the Lord Jesus, in just a little while, even his disciples forsake him. What a contrast. What a contrast over and against David. His people did not forsake him. His people went with him. We read, do we not, of the Lord Jesus, that he tread the winepress and he trod it alone. They who was in the garden with his disciples, and he said, watch and pray three times. What can you not watch and pray? All alone. My friends, I'm trying to point you to the sinfulness of man, but the faithfulness of a God who determines to save his people. And there's a picture. As we go in our mind's eye to 2 Samuel 15 and we see David weeping, covering his head, walking barefoot, understanding that he is but a sinner, deserving all that he's getting. And yet, you see, he's able to go back into Jerusalem. But for the Lord Jesus to go back into Jerusalem, what would it mean? It would mean his death. It would mean his whipping. It would mean the laceration of his back, the bruising and the contusing of his face. His image, 
His face marred more than any other man. Never was such sorrow as his sorrow. Read there, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, or Kedron, where was a garden into which he entered, and his disciples. You see, immediately that follows the sequel there of crossing the brook Kedron, he goes and enters into a garden. And my friends, it is a garden of agony, is it not? And we are told that he sweat great drops of blood, as it were, the agony, the pain, and realizing all that he would have to go through. Having told his disciples in that upper room discourse at the Passover meal that the hour is now come, and then the deception of Judas, and now it is all carried out. Well, our Lord departs into that darkest of places, Gethsemane. Joseph Hart in his hymn writes, Come all ye chosen saints of God that long to feel the cleansing blood. In pensive pleasure join with me to sing of sad Gethsemane. O Kedron, gloomy brook how foul, thy black polluted waters roll, no tongue can tell, but some can taste the filth that into thee was cast. And you see, he drank as it were. As he passed, having passed through the brook Hedron, his, as, as, as it were, he's drunk from it, and now he, he, he has to enter into Gethsemane. Drinking from Kedron was meaning Gethsemane. No Kedron, no dark Gethsemane. As he looked into that bitter cup, remember there was a cup there, if you read, As he looked into it, he could see the dregs of the sin of his people. And he cried, if it be possible, let this cup part from me. Nobody had to drink it, as it were, spiritually. He had to bear it. He had to enter into it. David, yes, as we thought this morning, was entering into something of the sufferings of the Lord, but not for his own sins. Did the Lord Jesus enter into that suffering, but for the sins of his people? David for his own sins, but for David it was bliss at the end, but not for Christ. It was horror on the next day. As God turned midday into midnight. Can you believe it? When the sun was at its zenith in the sky. At the twelfth, what we call noon, at that sixth hour. It was darkness. Why? Because he was drinking damnation, my friends, for his people. Now, who are his people? That's the big issue, isn't it? That's the big question. They are people like David. Who will, we read this morning there of David ascending Mount Olivet with tears. 
And I suppose in a sense we don't need to weep real tears, but we weep over our sin. My friends, let me say this. The sinner that truly repents, comes with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and understands what he deserves from God, and understands, as David said, Lord, remember as we read this morning, David, Lord, said, Lord, if you take me to Jerusalem, that's fine. But if you take not me, not there, Lord, do whatsoever thou will with me, Lord. David was in effect saying, Lord, I know what I deserve as a sinner. You see, God's people never try to make excuses. David never got up and said, you know, God, I think I'm a lot better than my son Absalom. I think I'm a whole lot better than these people back in Jerusalem, these people that have abandoned me. David never said that. David said, Lord, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. But Lord, I commit myself into thy hands. Those are God's people. They've broken over their sin. By now, David must have been feeling the weight of his guilt and his sin. And that's the question that I would put to you tonight. When the Lord Jesus began to preach, what was his first word when he preached? Do you know it? You ought to know it. Repent. If a man does not repent, he has never any warrant to believe that Christ died for him. The soul that truly repents, my friends, the soul that is truly penitent and is sorrowful over their sin, has every warrant to believe that Jesus Christ died for them. You don't look in your heart and try to look for some good. Let me say that. It's absolutely vital. And that's not what we're preaching here tonight. What we're preaching is, is there repentance? You know in that passage, Luke chapter 13, where the Jews, they tell the Lord Jesus Christ of Pilate, who mixed the blood of the sacrifices of some, And he said to them, he said, do you think that these were worse sinners than you? And what did he say? He said, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he said, do you suppose also those upon the 18 of whom the tower of Siloam fell upon were worse sinners than you? He said, except you repent, you will perish. And let me say it again and state it in black and white and underline it a hundred times if I could. If you do not repent, you have no warrant to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. None. 
the proof of your salvation is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is always in that order. You have faith in him because you have repented and you realize you are an unworthy sinner and that he alone can save. He doesn't call the righteous people that think that they're righteous. So you don't try to look for some good in your life to make you right before God because there's nothing good in you. God says, look unto me. But that looking unto him implies repentance. It always does in the scriptures. Except you repent, you will perish. David repented. David was sorrowful over his sin. David confessed it. David wept. There was a change in David. Now, of course, David had repented long ago. But he was still a sinner. And so it is with every Christian. My friend, do you not realize a Christian will go on repenting in this life? And those of you who think maybe you've gone too far, John tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ bore the sins of his people. He drank from that bitter cup. He crossed that awful place. He was prepared to come into this stinking world to die for sinners, to suffer for them, and to bear their punishment so that they will repent and so that they will believe upon him. There's your hope. It's not in you, but it's in Christ. So those who truly repent, my friends, have every warrant and confidence as they come to God with a broken heart and a contrite spirit by all that Christ has done to believe that they did it for, he did it for them. There's your hope, my friends. There's your confidence. Don't look to me. Don't look to your church going. Don't look to anything else. Is there a change? You know, this man, Ahithophel, what he did was he, he deceived David, just like Judas. And when he realized that he was wicked, what did he do? He went and took his life. But let me say, friends, that's what a lot of people do anyway. Oh, you may not commit suicide, but you continue to take your life for yourself. You say, it's my life, God. I'll live it how I want. And that's what people do. David was brought to that place of brokenness in his heart. Repented of his sin. God mercifully took him back. Let me say this, friends. All who truly repent and believe upon Christ shall be saved. By the grace of God, 
they're hearing and they're believing upon Christ. And you know, we read in that psalm, because he drank from the brook, that dark, bitter brook, he shall lift up the head. His head is lifted up. Where do you think Christ is now? You know, he drank from that brook, but you know what? He did not drink his own sins. That's the key to the gospel, isn't it? Christ did not drink his own sins. But as it were, he drank the bitter cup of all the dregs of the sins and the iniquities of his people. Love swallowed it up. You know what? So God's people do not have to drink that cup. And one day he'll lift up their heads. He lifts up our heads now. And we rejoice in him, don't we? Rejoice in all of his love. Paul said, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. It's a strong statement. Why would you not love Jesus Christ? Why would you not love God? Jesus Christ is God, isn't he? Do not love this one that came into this world, my friends, is the greatest wickedness. Chief commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, and thy strength. And to love thy neighbor as thyself. And let me tell you, only through Jesus Christ, by loving him, is one able to do the rest. God gives power. He gives grace. He gives his word tonight. Many people scoff at this. That God would send his son, but God did send him. And where is he now? My friends, he is not in the grave. The father has said to him, sit down now, my son, at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And I said that this verse is the most quoted to verse in all of the New Testament. And what does it say? Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. My friend, God has his enemy, Satan and the unbelieving world. And one day every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. It's a matter of time, but God will do it. God sent his son. God accomplished his work there at Calvary. And Christ is ever living to intercede as what? A high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Who was Melchizedek? Mel meaning king, Zedek meaning righteousness. And he was king of Salem. It's the old-fashioned name of Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ, my dear friends, is indeed the great antitype who will meet both king and priest forever. If you've sinned, you need no other priest but Christ. Sinners come to him because he offered up himself to all who repent 
and truly believe upon his name. And he gives them eternal life so that you and I, if we are his people, will not drink from the bitter dregs of God's wrath of an eternal inferno of hell. But we will be taken to his heaven before long. What grace, what love, will he lift up the head? Many heads tonight. His head is lifted up. Our hearts are lifted up. And we rejoice in him. Oh, sinner friend, seek him now. You've heard his word. And as I've said, all who truly repent and come with a broken heart and a contrite spirit have every warrant that Christ is theirs. Seek him now while he may be found. Amen.